0: kids, I have a uh, message for you to begin with. And so let me ask you this, kids. Have you ever said the, word, the words, it's not fair? I'm guessing you probably have. Every kid thinks being fair is important. If you have brothers or sisters, you've probably done quite a bit of comparing with them. Perhaps it's uh, You know, how much ice cream did you get or how many chores do you have to do compared to your brothers and sisters? And so the words might come out of your mouth, how come he gets more ice cream? Or how come she doesn't have to clean her room? And maybe your parents are better parents than I am, but I know that I can get impatient with my boys about the constant complaint of how I'm not being fair. I keep thinking that being generous with each other is more important and helping others even if others don't have to is more important. But I can also remember, kids, when I was your age, that there was quite a few times with my parents where I felt like I got this feeling of having like this huge lump stuck in my throat. Like it was like there was a baseball stuck in my throat. And I would think, you know, why does it hurt so much? And why where's there water coming out of my eyes right now? Why am I crying? And looking back now, I can, I can put words to it. I realize now, the big lump in my throat was a result, the fact that my parents were being unfair—truly unfair—that they were perhaps telling me off for something that I really didn't do, and somehow they had jumped to the the, the conclusion that I was the one guilty of of breaking whatever or or dirtying whatever. And so I, I was feeling this sense of, of unfairness, not because I didn't get as much ice cream, not because I had to do more chores than my sisters, but because I truly was feeling like I was being blamed for something that was not my fault. Now, being fair, or the, the big word we use for it as grown-ups is justice, is something that we care about from a very young age, and grown-ups care about it too. And grown-ups talk a lot about how they see unfairness all around them. And I want you to know that the God that we believe in is a God who is fair. He is a God who is fair. And no, we don't always feel like he is fair, but he is fair indeed. And he knows everything and is actually more fair than we can ever imagine. God loves us so much and is so fair that he decided that the way that we could have relationship with him forever and ever was by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross so that he would die for all of the wrongs that we have done and said and all of the wrongs that we will do and say in the future. He is so fair that he had to make right the things that we did wrong. He couldn't just ignore them and let them go. But he loves us so much that he didn't want us to be kept from relationship with him forever as a punishment. And so Jesus took the punishment for all of our wrongs that we will ever do. And in fact, that's actually not very fair for Jesus. But Jesus willingly, out of love for us, took that punishment, took that feeling of that big lump in his throat for our sake so that we could have relationship with God forever and ever and ever and that our wrongs would not get in the way of that relationship. So kids, if you ever get that feeling that it's not fair, remember That God is completely fair, but also completely loves you through and through, and that he shows that through Jesus on the cross. So I hope you take that with you this week, kids, and keep listening in if you want as we dig deeper into this passage today, where we will see these ideas of fairness play out in this picture of the marriage feast um, that is a picture of, of, of heaven, essentially, So kids and adults, we come now to the marriage feast in the book of Revelation. We come to the last sections of Revelation that really give us hope as Christians in this life. And this image of the marriage feast is this beautiful image for our Christian hope. And so I want to ask, we're going to ask this question again and again throughout today. What does it mean to partake in the marriage feast? What does it mean to partake in the marriage feast? And the answer is, and you can write this down if this helps you, the marriage feast is justice, worship, and marriage. The marriage feast is justice, worship, and marriage. Let's read uh, verses one through four to begin with. One through three to begin with. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, We didn't actually spend much time in Revelations chapter 15 and 16, which symbolize the comprehensiveness and justness of God's final judgment. And we saw in earlier chapters in Revelation where we talked about the partial judgment that God brought with the hope that people would turn back to God that they would put faith in God, that they would see that life is to be found in God himself, that this was the heart of God, that he wanted to see people turn back to him. But now as we enter the last chapters of Revelation, we see God's final justice spelled out clearly. And it is a justice that ultimately gives us hope as Christians that through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, we have hope for eternal life in him. We heard in chapter 18 last week how the, the prostitute symbolizing beguiling affluence thoroughly and quickly receives final justice. And soon we will see the beasts that symbolize um, violence and deceptive heresy and Satan himself receive final justice. And this should give us hope as people living in a broken world. And it really is, it's strange that in a modern era that our ears are very queasy about hearing about judgment, but very eager to hear about justice. Let me say that again. We're very queasy to hear about judgment, but very eager to hear about justice. But we have to see that that doesn't make sense. There can be no justice without judgment. It is literally nonsensical to think about justice without judgment. Someone has to judge in order for there to be justice served. So who will judge rightly? Will you judge rightly? Or will you trust God to be the judge? And we see in this first section what it means to partake in the marriage feast is that the marriage feast is justice. We hear in verse one a loud voice like the sound of a great multitude cry out hallelujah. And actually this particular Greek word for hallelujah is only found here in chapter 19 in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. And it comes from a Hebrew term that essentially means praise Yahweh and that it's seen often in the Psalms, particularly Psalms 113 to 118. And so we hear this multitude crying out, praise God for the justice that he brings and for vindicating the Christians that were martyred for their faith in Jesus This justice must come before the marriage feast of the lamb. The marriage feast is a symbol of union, of joy, of celebration, but it's not just a party. It is the party to end all parties. And so all things must be made right before this party is to take place. All countries, all cultures, all systems, all peoples, all individuals must be held accountable before God for their actions. Scripture te- teaches us that all have fallen short of God's glory. And we've been given a very fresh reminder of that this, this week. You may have heard the hashtag this week. #IRunWithMaud. I run with Maud. By now, many of us have seen the video footage of Ahmad Arbery being shot by Gregory and Travis McMichael. This father-son duo have been arrested, finally, after public outcry demanding justice. And now we must wait for the justice, just, justice process to play out as more formal investigations happen and facts are uncovered to see what happened with Mr. Arbery's death. But what we can say with I think great confidence that the clear injustice thus far is that these two men were never even arrested and it took two months after the fact and great public outcry and a viral video for there to be arrests made and further investigation. Those of us who are not African-Americans simply cannot know what an event like this does to the African-American community. I read on Facebook this week, an African-American campus minister that I know here in Iowa City, share the story in solidarity with Ahmad about being belligerently questioned as he entered his own home this past fall. And this policeman said to him, said to this campus minister as he entered his own home, you fit the description of a man breaking into homes in this neighborhood. The same words that Ahmad heard. Look, I have no idea what it's like to be black in America, but I know that I have been racial profiled and I have heard plenty of jokes of how Asians all look alike. And so for that reason, it's not hard for me to imagine how scary these words are. You fit the description. And it's not just in other parts of the country where we see this kind of injustice happen. It's right here at home. Our hearts cry out for justice. Here's the thing though. If we cry out for justice, as we often do, then we need a judge who we can trust, who is unbiased, unbribable, and understanding of all the facts and all the mitigating circumstances. Let me say this again, we need a judge who is unbiased, unbribable, and understanding of all the facts and mitigating circumstances. Are you so arrogant to think that you can be that judge? So often today in our culture, we cry out for justice, but we have no foundation or standard in which to judge anything. We have no judge to trust with our injustices. Yes, we must trust a legal system. We must trust human judges to do their parts. But I'm talking about the big picture of justice. Do we just put that responsibility in our hands as humans? Or must we trust a God who is unbiased, unbribable, and understanding of all the facts and mitigating circumstances? What about all the injustices that aren't captured on video and made viral? What will we do with those injustices? And Revelation says to us, trust God to be the judge who is worthy to make judgment and bring justice to individuals and institutional sins in this world. Revelation clearly unveils the responsibility that individuals and institutions have in explicitly and complicitly sinning against God and others. But Revelation also gives us hope and unveils the responsibility of Satan and the unholy trinity of violence and heresy and beguiling affluence. And this verse, these verses teach us that justice must happen before the marriage feast. And who will we look to for that justice? As Christians, we do not and should not take justice into our own hands. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ to bring justice in the end, and this is what sustains us and gives us hope and enables us to persevere. The marriage feast means justice. But let's look at verse four now. Verse four says, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So let me ask this question again. What does it mean to partake in the marriage feast? The marriage feast is worship. The heavens will rejoice in the prostitute being judged, and will rejoice in the marriage of the Lamb of God with the bride. Earlier in Revelation 5, we we had described to us this picture of the throne room of God with the concentric circles of worship going out from the throne of God, starting with these four majestic living creatures to the 24 elders to the multitude of the people of God from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so right now we see the marriage feast brings, back, brings us back to the throne room of God where the heavenly worship leads the people of God in praising God and rejoicing in God, in delighting in God for making all things right in this world, for vindicating the martyrs for the faith and for joining together the bride of Christ, the church forever without blemish with the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever been to... Um, a Christian conference with hundreds and thousands of people where you had the opportunity to sing praise to God with thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ where you joined your voice along with the voice of a multitude of people and you engaged in passionate worship to God. If you have had that experience or you could imagine that experience even, that is just a taste a foretaste of what is being described here. Worship of God happens at the marriage feast. Let's keep going. So we've seen the marriage feast is justice. The marriage feast is worship. But let's see how this section ends. Verse six says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, again, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So let me ask you again, what does it mean to partake in the marriage feast? And of course it means marriage. The bride must be prepared for marriage. The church church must be made pure by persevering in the testimony of Jesus in word and deed. And that has been a theme throughout Revelation starting from the words we saw that were given to the seven churches earlier on in the book of Revelation, that the church is to come out of the ways of violence and deceptive heresy and beguiling affluence and pleasure. The bride must make herself ready, but her wedding dress of righteousness must be granted to her by the lamb. Verses seven and eight say, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready but verse eight, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Or as one commentator says, her gown of righteous deeds is her groom's gift of grace. Her gown of righteous deeds is her groom's gift of grace. As Christians, we have a job. We must cooperate with the Holy Spirit within, within us to be made pure by persevering in our testimony of Jesus in word and deed. But Jesus has a job too. The Lamb of God, our groom, is the one who makes us righteous, pleasing, acceptable before God. The Lamb of God makes us belong to God by clothing us with a wedding dress of righteous deeds. This is not a wedding dress we can make on our own no matter how handy we are. This is not a wedding dress we can buy for ourselves no matter how rich we are. This is not a wedding dress we can find for ourselves no matter how smart or resourceful we are. This is a wedding dress of perfect, righteous deeds that can only be granted to us by faith in the lamb that was slain. And this text here points us to an, I think, even more beautiful picture In Isaiah 25, which again, this alludes to, a gospel picture of the marriage feast of God. And there in Isaiah 25, it says this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. People love the idea of heaven, but rarely have any definition around what heaven is. The marriage feast is heaven. The marriage feast is heaven is a picture of the promised land, the next life, the kingdom of God, the new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem. Do you want to participate in the marriage feast? Do you want justice, worship, and marriage with God forever? All you need to do is by faith to put on the wedding dress of Christ's righteousness granted to you and to persevere in your testimony of Jesus. You don't have to be perfect in and of yourself. By faith, you need to put on this wedding dress of Christ's righteousness and persevere in the testimony of Jesus in word and deed. May your hearts continue to long for justice, worship, and marriage of the lamb that was slain. It's not fair, you say. No, it's not fair for Jesus, but he loves us so much. Let us pray.